Joan, come on up and continue to lead us. <laughs> Sorry, Randy. <laughs> I'm already clearing my throat. Drives him crazy. When I clear my throat in a microphone. Anyway, I'm here to talk about uh, cross-cultural worship. Um, a lot of people have been in churches where there have been worship wars over different aspects of worship. Um, that's even happened in our church from time to time. We've had our own versions of the worship wars. Um, adding, like Randy said, you know, we're here to make your life a little harder. When you add race into anything, it becomes harder. When you add race into, into the worship wars, it becomes a little more intense. So I'm here to help you figure out maybe why the things that bother you about worship in a different culture might bother you. But New City itself, our church there in Chattanooga, is a church that is cross-cultural in its vision, mission, and worship style. From the beginning of our history as a church, our goal has been to be a church in which both blacks and whites would feel comfortable worshiping together. New City began as a Sunday school, like I was telling you last night, for black children in 1968. We have been a particular church in the PCA since 1976. As I said, uh, we celebrated our 40th anniversary uh, last year, no, in 2016. Um, at New City, the way we worship is driven by our vision as a church, which I've got our church bulletin, one of our older ones, is printed on the front of our bulletin every week. It says, our vision as a church is to establish a cross-cultural worshiping community centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ that produces disciple believers who become God's instruments of grace, justice, and mercy. So that's what we're trying to do. And so everything we do at our church from leadership development, uh, the way um, our staff is hired, is, and including the way we do worship on Sunday, is driven by that vision. And it's always in the heads of our leadership. So I'm going to start out by talking about some things about worship itself. Worship is an eternal occupation. A song we like to sing at our church is called In the Sanctuary. And the line that's repeated over and over again is, we will praise him for the rest of our days. And it talks about praise being done eternally. And this is a biblical idea. And one of the things I love about worship, we get to do it every Sunday as a community, is it's one of the, one of the activities that we know about for sure that we're going to be doing in heaven. So to think about that just kind of gives me a lot of joy. The other thing about worship, it involves adoration, devotion, reverence, homage, honor, veneration, supplication, and invocation. Psalm 29, 2 says, give unto the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Our worship is our proper response to who God is and to his mighty acts. And we need to understand that worship is not just about us, it's about, it's about God. But it's also for us, and in participating, we learn about God and grow in our faith. And some elements of Christian worship are preaching, reading of scripture, prayer, singing, baptism, the Lord's Supper, giving, and in some worship traditions, prophecy and tongue speaking. It's been my experience that the one thing on that list, which is actually the singing, the music part, is one thing we're willing to fight about, um, and I think one reason for that is because singing is one of the few times we actually get to respond to God physically in a worship service and actually tell him how we feel about him. So what is cross-cultural worship? As, as I said, our, at one of our goals at New City is to have cross-cultural worship. And this is actually different from multicultural worship. In a church that is multicultural, multiracial, you can have... Several, it could be a community that's pretty diverse, racially, ethnically. You can have different kinds of groups uh, sitting in a, in, a, in a sanctuary, worshiping together, but the worship is dominated by one culture. Um, we've been in churches where, you know, the population is mostly white and Korean, 
But the, mu the worship style is definitely Northern European. You know, they're not singing anything in Korean. Um, so, but cross-cultural worship is where the dominant culture gives up its right to dominate the culture, culture style and ba basically decides to take a back seat and say, let's do what you, uh, in what, what, what you would do in your culture during worship. So in order to have cross-cultural worship, the majority culture gives up its rights to have its culture dominate the worship style. And this is obviously a much harder goal to achieve than a worship style is, is that of only the majority culture and that appeals to one segment of the congregation. But our church, New City, was founded as a cross-cultural ministry with white people seeking to minister primarily to black people and we realize that our unity depends in part on the fact that all of us find something to love during our worship times. Our unity is also based on our common vision, um, some of which I just read to you. So, how do we do this? How does, how does this work practically? Um, over time, we've learned how to do it. We've had... <laughs> different itinerations of the way we do worship. When we first started, we were in a little inner city Sunday school and we would sing with the children and we had something like, you know, these flip charts where you can have a whole pad of paper that's this side, size and we would write out verse after verse from the Trinity hymn book and our children would sing them with us, you know, and we just flip through them, six verses in a song sometimes thinking that, you know, this is the best way to do worship with these little inner city kids. Over time, we've learned to do things differently. Right now, um, well, for many years, we ha our church had a worship committee, and it was made out of different elements of our church, African-American, white, lay, staff. Um, and every week we get together and we figure out, well, what can we do this week? And um, we picked the songs, we picked the praise team, who was going to lead, who was going to play. Uh, currently, our music director does that um, pretty much on his own. Uh, he draws from a pool of about nine, no, 60 people, uh, most of whom are volunteers, and that includes our praise team, our band, our um, singers, um, and people that do text and sound. Um, we sing a, a kind of an amalgamation of different kinds of music, different kinds, different genres of music, Christian music. We do a lot of hymns, um, some of which have been rewritten or jazzed up a little bit, kind of like uh, what Matt does here. Uh, we do CCM, Christian Contemporary. Um, our choir does a lot of black gospel. We have a choir. Um, and we do music in other languages. Uh, we sing a lot in uh, music in uh, African languages, Swahili. So every once in a while we'll sing in Indian languages, uh, Spanish. We sing a lot of, a lot of songs in Spanish. <clears throat> so this all sounds kind of convoluted. And oh, and the other thing I'll say about our worship, um, our worship teams are chosen intentional, intentionally to reflect not just the people who are in the room, but the people we want to join us in the room. So when our, when our music director picks a praise team, he very carefully has different ethnicities included in the people that you see singing in the front, the people that lead worship, the song leader. Um, even the band is diverse racially, and it's done that way intentionally. Um, Randy and I have the opportunity to visit a lot of churches that tell us, yeah, we want to be different, we want to change, and I, for me, I walk in and I see an all-white praise team, an all-white band, and I'm like, huh, what do you, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe this isn't for you. <laughs> I mean, it kind of sends a message to people that are coming in that either I am wanted here, for me anyway, when I see an all-white praise team, I say, maybe they don't really want me, but if I do see diversity, I'm kind of reassured that, yeah, I, I, can, I can be here. And so that's, that's one of the things that we do very intentionally, Sunday by Sunday. So um, this all sounds maybe a little complicated, a little convoluted, so why do we even do it? 
Um, and I've got several scriptures that I'll read to you that kind of express, help me express uh, why we do this as a worshiping community in, our, in most of our new city churches. Um, one of the things um, that we're motivated by is to be a model of the kingdom uh, that is found in Revelation 5. Um, Randy kind of quoted part of it this morning. Um, you, are, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Um, even in heaven, our racial and ethnic differences are going to be so apparent that John, when he saw it, he said, he wrote it down, um, which is kind of amazing. I'm, I just wonder if a lot of people are going to be really surprised <laughs> when they get to heaven about who's there. Um, but uh, part of what we're doing at New City is we're trying to model what we're going to have in heaven right here on, on earth every Sunday. That's, that's one of our goals. Um, another reason why we do it is it's a practical way in which we fulfill, live out, and live out the commandment to love one another as we love ourselves, which is what Jesus told us when he was asked, what are the greatest commandments? Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourselves. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So it's, pretty, it's a pretty major thing to be able to love other people like I love me. <laughs> and this is part of what we're trying to live out at, at our church. Oops, I knew that was going to happen. <clears throat> Another reason why we do it, here, take this one too, please, thank you, <laughs> is to follow the example of our Lord Jesus who put the interests of his father and of the church before his own. And this is Philippians 2, and I'm only going to read part of it, he, where uh, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we're trying to model that in the way we do practice um, our worship. Another reason is so that the world will notice our unity. Randy talked about that also this morning. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. I think the world is waiting to see this happen, <laughs> to see this model. Um, when we stay in our separate little enclaves, uh, what does that say to the world? But when they see us doing something that's really impossible, loving each other across racial and ethnic lines, I think that speaks very loudly, especially in, in our day. And it actually proves that Jesus came. <laughs> so I think that's a pretty major thing. So that's why we do it, but how do we practice this? Um, one thing we need to do is to be aware that some things are not just are just different, but not necessarily wrong. Again, Randy talked about that a little bit. Um, at New City, we try to accept and celebrate our differences. Randy mentioned that we celebrate um, Black History Month every year, um, and it's a time when we all learn together about the different the different cultures that are in our church. And everybody, we, I think we've grown to really enjoy it and look forward to it. And we celebrate that difference. We don't just say, okay, it's okay. But no, you, you're, you guys are pretty wonderful. You know, your culture is really beautiful, is what we're saying there. Um, so how do we live with difference? Uh, I talked a little bit about that already, living with difference of different political and uh, uh, yeah, political views. But there, how do we live in, with the different cultures? Um, I have a story I like to tell. I always like to tell at least one story about one of our experiences in a, a church, not ours. Um, two of the things that Randy do in our job as uh, Urban and Mercy Ministry with the PCA is we spend a lot of time with churches that are, that are like New City. They are part of the New City Network. They are churches that are urban and multiracial. They include the poor in the church. They have joyful music and sound biblical teaching. The other part of what we do is we visit uh, traditional, uh, usually white PCA churches, 
um, that have been in a community for a while, and maybe the community has a different ethnics or a racial group has moved in around them. Um, and so they have an interest in maybe trying to reach those people. Um, and so they invite us to come in so they can maybe talk about those things. Also, they want to know often how to reach the poor that are, that are around their church. Um, a couple of years ago, we were visiting one of these churches and that wanted to be more effective in their, in their mercy outreach, and they wanted to be more multiracial and multicultural. The first night of our visit there, we had dinner at one of the elders' home with the elder board. Um, it was one of those wonderful occasions where I get to be not only the only woman, but the only African-American at the table. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it was, it was a pleasant evening. We had a great time with these, these men, but they were trying to describe for us what they were already doing. This church had taken on a ministry and a housing project that wasn't even that close to the church. It was the closest housing project to the church, but it wasn't right next to her. Um, and so they, they had started a ministry, especially during the summer, and they'd gotten involved with a school, and they were doing tutoring, and then they were doing all kinds of uh, fun things with the children and the projects during the summer. And they, they had, a lot of these people had just fallen in love with this particular ministry. So they were trying to make that hard turn, the, the tra tra that hard transition, or thinking about making this hard transition of actually bringing some of these people into the church. Um, so we began, but you know, that, that, conversa that conversation kind of stalled out when we began talking about changing the worship. And one of the elders said, I'm just going to be honest. I don't think I want our worship to change. I don't think I would like it. They also thought that, and this is a more general opinion, that the people in the housing projects they focused their ministries on would not be able to relate well to the reform teaching and preaching the church had to offer. And so maybe we should not even do this after all. <laughs> um, the next evening, we were scheduled to have dinner with the African-American members of the church. And I think that in, in this church of about 200, 250, there were maybe 10 African-American members, and six of them had dinner with us. At their request, they did not want any of the church leaders to attend because they wanted to be able to be completely honest. And to sum up what they said, as a group, they appreciated the strengths of the church. They loved the reform teaching. They all had strong relationships with the pastors and some of the leaders, and they placed a very high value on the ministries the church was doing in the projects but they thought it could be done more effectively. They wanted to see more minorities in leadership. There were none at that time. And they universally had problems with the worship. One of the men in that, one of the, one of the six, uh, actually did participate in the worship because he's really committed to serving in that church in any way that he can. One of the women thought that in her previous church, she loved leading worship, but she said she would never volunteer to be on a praise team in that church. She said, it would kill my soul to do that. It's like, ooh. They also felt strongly that when they expressed dissatisfaction, they were not listened to. They didn't think their church was really willing to change. With tears, the same woman that had expressed that previous comment said that they, as a minorities, are making all the sacrifices to stay in the church. And she didn't see why the whites, and she didn't see the white people in that church being willing to make similar sacrifices. She said, why, do, why are we continuing to hold the hands of these older people who should have already learned these hard truths? And um, so if your church, you and your church want to become cross-cultural in your worship, this is the, one of the first things you need to learn, and Randy mentioned this already, is that everybody gives up something to be there. Um, for black people, it, we give up being considered normal black people. <laughs> Everyone thinks we're kind of a little weird, even people in my family. My mom didn't even know what to call us. She didn't know we were a church. She's like, yeah, they do this thing. I was like, yeah, mom, we're a church. <laughs> It's a little hard when your mother doesn't even understand you. Um, and um, so we're always sort of being a little off, a little weird, and often ask the question, why do you go to church with those white people? Sometimes we're thought of as being, have, of maybe wanting to run away from who we really are, which is black. 
and all that that means, running away from being black in the wider cultural context here in America. We also give up leadership and power that comes to us naturally in an all-black church, and we, also, and we give up being able to worship in our own heart language and worship style. White people in a multiracial church, multi, a cross-cultural church, also have to give up power and the right for their culture to be completely dominant in the worship style of the church. Um, that white elder wasn't wrong in what he said. He did recognize that he wouldn't be happy if the worship of, of his church changed, even though I'm not sure he really understood what that change would look and feel like. But he had made a judgment regarding black music and culture. He is unfamiliar with it. He's uncomfortable with it. He is afraid of it. The fact is that African-American music and culture are different from white music and culture. And this gentleman was faced with the possibility of having to deal with that difference in the context of worship. And he was feeling a little skittish. <laughs> so I'm going to talk about the worship cultures. Uh, in, white, in, in the white church and in the black church. Um, start out by saying the worship cultures of African Americans and white Americans in this country came from very different experiences. Blacks came, blacks in this country came to understand the one true God from a very different place than where whites did. White culture was birthed in Northern Europe between 550 AD and by 1517, which was the year of the Reformation in Germany, congregations didn't sing at all. They, the choirs just sang. If you've ever been to Europe, you've seen the beautiful cathedrals and that they're full of art. Uh, the church service was conducted in Latin, and not many people who came to those services even spoke Latin. Usually just the priests did. The people that were there spoke another language in their daily lives, usually German or English. The choir sang in Latin. The, preacher was in, the preaching was in Latin. There was very little that happened in the service that people could actually understand. It was hoped that they would learn something from the art on the walls, and the rest was beautiful and mysterious, like they were told God was. This is why Martin Luther and some of the other reformers were often hymn writers, they began to write hymns in the languages that the people actually spoke. And the songs they wrote were full of theology, so the people as they sang could express the truths that were found in the Bible. There was also a great psalm singing tradition of actually using the psalms as they were written and, and put in, putting those to music. Uh, one thing I read uh, was, uh, I, I guess it was the Anabaptists that didn't believe in instruments, and they would actually go through the cathedrals and destroy the organs. I mean, they, they were off the chain, running around bashing organs. <laughs> anyway, African Americans came to this country from Africa and a culture that is very communal and participatory. African American worship has never been a spectator sport. We don't just sit there and absorb. When we listen to a singer or a choir sing, we are admiring the skill and art that's involved, and we also admire the personal experience that is expressed in the music or the preaching. Um, so for African Americans, worship is more uh, a very communal experience. Um, one of the best experiences of my life um, happened a few, oh, oh gosh, how long has our son been married? Seven years? Uh, our son got married in Kenya. He married a Kenyan woman. And uh, so my husband, my daughter, and I, we traveled to Nairobi for that wedding. Um, I did, I took my camera, and I took literally hundreds of photographs of everything and uh, the beautiful bride and my handsome son. <laughs> and I, when I got home, I realized an amazing thing, that looking at those photographs, it looked a lot like an American wedding would look. I mean, she wore a very similar white dress and a veil, and everybody was dressed up, and a lot of flowers, and you know, the bridesmaids and everything. It, like, visually, it looked just like an American wedding. But being there, it, actually experiencing that, that ceremony that day was very different. Um, there was a 30-voice choir. The choir sang. The congregation sang. We all sang together. Um, when we made 
vow, when the uh, bride and groom made vows to each other, everybody made vows. I mean, the, the pastor, we all kind of participated in making vows to that couple, promising to help them to maintain their marriage. The wedding guests came and they stayed for the whole day. There was a lot of singing and dancing and celebrating. And nobody, you know, I could, you go to an American wedding, after 30 minutes, everybody's ready to go, unless the food's really good. But, you know, people were very content to just be there. That was why they came, to celebrate that couple and God, the, the fact that God had brought them together. So African Americans come out of a very community-focused culture, and it shows in the way we worship. We also come out of a culture that was forged in suffering, you turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and, and clothe me with joy, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. O oh Lord my God, I will praise you forever. That's Psalm 30, 11 and 12. For all of us, whether you're in a black church or a white church, in any or either culture, the congregation, we, whoever we are, are not the audience. God is the audience for all worship, and he is the only one that really needs to be pleased by how we worship him. So I have these nine expressions, again, to kind of help you to figure out um, why you're experiencing what you do in a worship service if you're not really comfortable. So I've kind of pulled these out and try to uh, do a compare and contrast thing of African-American music, African-American worship and majority culture worship. And the first thing I pulled out is emotion. <clears throat> By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? That's Psalm 137. One of the reasons African Americans during slavery were drawn to Christianity was because they were able to make a direct connection in their hearts and minds to the people of Israel and the time they spent in captivity in Egypt and later in Babylon and with the whole experience of slavery. That connection was strong and powerful I cry aloud to the Lord, I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint, before him I tell my trouble. That's Psalm 142. In sorrow, in weeping, in wailing, and in joy, for African Americans, church was always a place to express an emotional connection to God. From slavery to sharecropping to ghettos, black people found church was the one place they knew they could go and really cut loose and be themselves. Um, yeah. They sing songs from the heart, seeking freedom and relief from God, who they saw as their only hope. And they would come away from service feeling like they could actually face life. They had literally sung themselves to life. All of this takes passion and energy, and so that's why there's so much emotion in African-American worship. The second thing I pulled out is volume. Um, shout for joy to God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. That's Psalm 100. Um, that's a scripture that talks about shouting and making noise. I have several others that I'm not going to read. But for African Americans, we're not really bothered by loud, if it sounds good. Um, we, yeah, we like our music just at any volume. But, you know, in majority culture churches, let's, let's just tone it down. Let's just tone it down. Um, another way we're different is movement. We like to move in, in church. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Moving down to verse 21, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these you spoke of, I will be held in honor. 
Those are a couple of excerpts from 2 Samuel, um, which is a story of David dancing before the Ark of the Lord when it was finally brought back uh, to the tabernacle, to the temple. Um, And David was dancing before the Ark of God, and he was so filled with joy that he literally made a fool, fool of himself. Um, And he was really out of control and just being delighted with God. His wife didn't think he was being dignified enough to be the king of Israel, and she rebuked him, and this was his response. I will be even more undignified before the Lord. And uh, so dancing before the Lord can be a form of, of, of worshipful expression. Um, For me personally, I always find it hard to sit still in church, (laughs) especially when they're singing. I'm often in the choir or on the praise team, so I'm actually standing in front of the congregation, and you can actually literally literally see the difference um, as as, uh, you watch people worshiping God. And I'm always amazed when people are kind of standing at attention and singing. I was like, (laughs) for me, it's kind of a puzzle. How do you even do that? Um, For most African-Americans, moving back and forth, nodding heads, clapping hands, raising hands, and even dancing is a proper response to a great song or an inspiring sermon. Scripture says, or seems to indicate, that it's okay to move around when you're worshiping. And I'm not saying everybody has to dance in church or raise their hand. I mean, if that's not you, that's okay. The thing I'm trying to get across is if you're sitting next to somebody that is, maybe you shouldn't, like, stare at them (laughs) and treat them like they're a little insane (laughs) or critique them anyway. The next thing I pulled out is spontaneity. And by this, I mean that in the black church, the congregation participates in such a way that neither the leaders or the people know for sure what's going to happen next. This creates flexibility in a worship service, and it also accounts in part for why African-American services don't always begin or end on time. Um, A few years ago, I got to visit my grandmother, my Kojic grandmother. I don't know if you're familiar with the Church of God in Christ. It's one of the Pentecostal, it's one of the black Pentecostal denominations. And uh, we were, Randy Randy and I were going to be in New Haven, and we're like, let's go see my grandmother. I hadn't seen her in years. So we got there on a Friday night, and my grandmother, when we called her, she said, well, I'm going to be in church tonight. (laughs) If you want to see me, you need to come there. So Randy and I made our way to this Kojic church in New Haven. And we got, and they they told us, you know, it's Friday night. On Friday night, we have youth service. And it was scheduled to start at 9. And we got there around 9.20, and there were five people in the sanctuary. And it was almost 10 o'clock when the pastor finally got up and started the worship time because there was no point in him starting any sooner because nobody was there. Um, He started the singing and people kept coming. The praise team started singing and people kept coming. And then they started having different gospel groups come up. And this, I think, was what was it. I mean, this, this sanctuary eventually was packed. Um, and I guess this is what, and what, it was different gospel groups getting up, and they would do a couple of songs and then sit down. Another group would come up and do a couple of songs. Well, we stayed till around 11 because we'd been driving all day, and we were tired. And I said but goodbye to my grandmother. Um, but as we were leaving, people were still coming. Buses were pulling up, and they were getting out of the buses. And uh, so we were like, oh, my gosh. So... Uh, I called my aunt the next day who had taken my 89-year-old grandmother to church that night. And I said, how long do you guys stay? And she said, it was, well, we got, it it ended around 2.45 in the morning. I was like, okay, we did the right thing, (laughs) leaving. But my 89-year-old grandmother, you know, she was there to the the very end. She was. So that's spontaneity. Um, It just leaves room for whatever. Ad-libbing. The next thing I pulled out is called ad-libbing or lining. Um, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set, me, he set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. In the gospel tradition, the leader would often line out a song several bars ahead of the congregation so that the people would know what to sing next. This is a valuable technique, and it's actually necessary if the song has never been written down 
or if you don't have any books to sing from, or if you can't read. In these situations, it helps to have a leader sing what you're supposed to sing next. Often the lining is sung, and the leader, instead of spoken, and the leader will improvise on the line as he sings ahead of the congregation. In this way, even a very familiar song, one that we sing a lot, is called We've Come This Far By Faith, is a little different every time it's sung. And it's an important characteristic of African-American music. Along with ad-libbing comes improvisation. And that's the next thing I'll talk about. Improvisation is similar to lining and it involves repetition. In black music, music lines are often repeated many times, especially at the end of the song. In our church, the technical term is the special chorus. <laughs> where we just sing the same line repeatedly, and the singer is then able, the, the soloist is then able to explore different techniques and performance styles. Gospel music is a singer's art more so than a composer's. The singers and the congregation get to be reminded uh, of what Jesus has, what the Lord has done for them. One of my favorite songs is by an artist, an African-American artist, uh, Fred Hammond. I don't know if many of you are familiar with Fred Hammond. I love his voice. He's got this beautiful tenor voice. Um, and, and one of my favorite songs is Jesus Be a Fence. And it's just a song that talks about how Jesus has fenced me in and protected me every day of my life. And at the end of the song, the choir is singing, Jesus be a fence, and Fred Hammond sings over them the different ways Jesus has protected me, my uncle, my mother, my father, my sister, my brother. And as he sings, you get to remember Gosh, God was good to my mother. Gosh, he was good to my father. He's been good to me. Every day of my life, he's protected me and the dang from danger that constantly would threaten me. And, and so what I'm trying to say is, you know, songs like that, that repetition gives us space in our minds to rehearse the examples of what God does for us every day. White people tend to have a problem with this because there's not enough content. And to have somebody continuously repeat the same thing sometimes feels annoying. But, you know, there's a lot of classical music out there. I, mean, I learned to sing the Hallelujah Chorus when I was in high school, actually before I became a believer. And I remember the word omnipotent. I thought it was four, I thought it was four words, because <laughs> that's what it's printed in the, in the text. But you're just singing hallelujah, and what do you think? I mean, the, the band is going, I mean, the, the orchestra is going crazy and improvising all around these singers who are basically just singing Hallelujah, and it gives you a chance to think, yeah, God, God, you're really amazing. Also, Psalm 118, uh, the line, his steadfast love endures to ever, forever is repeated many, many times. Um, one of the things this also requires, if you're going to have a, a leader singing over a choir, you kind of need a choir. So most African-American churches do have choirs. Um, I really love Matt and what he does, but I don't think I've ever been to an African-American church where it's just a white guy with a guitar or a black guy with a guitar. I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> just one person playing a guitar and singing. It's usually an ensemble, at least, even if that's just a couple, you know, five women and a couple of men, and the women sing tenor. But there's usually a choir or an ensemble that sings behind the lead singer, and that's a common thing in our tradition. The next thing I'm going to pull out is common themes. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. That's Psalm 116. In the African-American gospel tradition, themes have to do with God helping or delivering the individual or comforting his people in their trials. The tradition began with spirituals whose lyrics were often based on Bible stories and concepts of moral behavior. They especially highlight stories about Moses, who represented freedom from bondage, and Jesus, who also suffered injustice. We also like to sing songs about heaven, where things are going to be very different than they are here, and the place where we are going to be reunited with loved ones. This knowledge that we would see our loved ones again was especially important to a people who live with the knowledge that your whole family could be sold away from you, and your brightest hope was that someday you'd see them in heaven. 
There is also a difference in black gospel and white music in who is addressed. Unlike other genres, traditional gospel music does not usually focus on God directly. The songs usually rehearse what God is doing in the life of the believer or what the believer hopes God will do. Um, some of the more contemporary uh, black artists do have a lot of songs that address God directly. Fred Hammond being one, Kirk Franklin, Richard Smallwood, they all have songs that address God directly, but the traditional, the old stuff, usually doesn't. Um, preaching is another difference in our worship cultures. In that day, you will say, praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known, among the, make known among the nations what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be made known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. That's Isaiah 12. In the African-American tradition, sermons and prayers are often sung. In the South, this is called hooping. Uh, the preacher tells a story in simple, direct words, and each line is given a response, such as amen, hallelujah, help him, Lord, and my all-time favorite, oh, Lord, please don't let him stop preaching. I've actually heard somebody <laughs> say that. It often sounds like a conversation between the preacher and the congregation. One book I read said that some scholars think this was the origin of the spirituals, this call and response type of sermonizing that was eventually written down and then sung. This can be a very emotional experience, but if the, contact is, if the content is biblical, it's great preaching because it's really reaching the hearts of the people. The last thing I'm going to talk about is the shout, and this is not something we necessarily do at New City. Um, the shout is a very physical and vocal expression of praise. It involves dancing, shouting, screaming, and calling on God. It is the believer's way of very fervently praying and glorifying God in a very physical and vocal way. People even faint when they shout. <laughs> uh, yeah, my aunt did that once, freaked me completely out. <laughs> For many people, it is a turnoff, but I think for many, it can be a heartfelt expression of worshiping God. So I'm going to close with the problem of interpretation. As we think of differences between African-American and white culture in worship, often what we're dealing with is a difference in interpretation. For someone from another culture, looking in at our exuberance and passion can often be viewed as people out of control or just being loud and noisy. Improvisation and ab living is called performance or showing off. Spontaneity is called uncertainty or confusion. And these things are judged harshly, often by our critics. But what David says in 2 Samuel 6 is relevant here. What may seem humiliating and undignified if done with a heart that is seeking to please God and celebrate before him, gives God glory. So, that's me. Do we have time for questions? Go ahead. Um, Joan, thanks so much. One question that stood out to me, and I know you guys are familiar both with the New City context, but also help other church plants and other churches around. What... What are some things you've learned about um, helping a church to be more hospitable and welcoming to different musical voices when it is coming from previously a majority culture kind of style? What are tips for transition or ways to, to move and, and make more room? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, this comes up a lot. And, you know, like that example I gave of the, the white elder in that all-white church, I don't think he really understood what he was even afraid of because it hadn't happened to him yet. Or maybe he'd heard something on the radio or something. Um, I think uh, educating yourselves <laughs> is a good way to do that. I mean, if you're really uh, committed to this, you might want to read more, um, actually listen to some of these other genres. Um, when I mentioned Fred Hammond, a lot of you responded. Fred Hammond, some of... Some of these guys are a little closer to dominant culture, music traditions than others, and so maybe start there and then move on. Um, 
One thing we do as a congregation is we invite other choirs to come in and uh, sing for, they don't sing for us. We, we, Randy invites their pastors to come and they bring their choirs. <laughs> and, uh, or going to visit other churches. Um, in Chattanooga, we have a lot of uh, choir days and our choir will actually go to another local church and listen to other choirs perform, we perform, and then we all give, the purpose is fundraising. But they're a lot of fun, and you get to hear all kinds of different uh, ways of, different takes on the same songs. Often we know the same songs. Every once in a while we're singing the same songs, but it always sounds a little different, our choir, from that choir. I don't know. Um, those, yeah, those, that's what I've got. Does anybody else have a question? Kyle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, we started with uh, flip charts, singing uh, Trinity hymns. <laughs> yeah, that was, that. yeah. And, the, and the, our children, you know, we were ministering mostly to young, to small children, elementary school age. Um, we went to, by the time, a few years later, we moved in. We, at, and at that time, we didn't even really have a piano. We had one of those toy pianos. It was pretty bizarre looking back on it, but we eventually got a piano and we got a music director who was a little more uh, comfortable exploring um, different kinds of music. He was a big fan of um, oh, Edwin Hawkins and uh, who, Oh Happy Day was a song that inspired our music director. He's still our music director, though he's getting ready to, to actually really, really retire in a couple of months. Um, and so at that point, it was, there wasn't a whole lot out there that was really translatable in our worship context. But anytime we heard a new song that we thought our, our congregation might like, we incorporated that. And that did include, um, a, one, one summer we had an African, a, South, a man from South Africa who was our interim pastor. And he taught us a lot of songs in Swazi. Um, which kind of got us going on the whole international thing. Um, we, um, again, we started a, a worship committee, which was very helpful because we, every day, every week when we would get together, we met every week pretty much, uh, we had different points of view and we would, we would critique what we'd done the previous Sunday. If we talked to somebody that had a problem or a question, we kind of, talk to them and we would bring that critique with us and so we would tear apart what we'd done the week before and then try to put something together that if we thought it was a valid critique, <laughs> uh, how do we not do that again if that's offensive? So we spent a lot of time talking about it and experimenting and seeing what worked and what didn't, what people loved, what they didn't love, both the white people in our congregation and, and the African Americans. And now we kind of have a template that we use all the time. There's something we've avoided. Um, we don't, we're not very liturgical. <laughs> uh, we, we have a time of corporate confession on communion Sundays, but most Sundays we don't. We don't have long pastoral prayers because a lot of our community, a lot of our people uh, kind of nod off <laughs> during pastoral prayer. You know, we try to do something that keeps the service moving so there aren't any really um, dead spots, really. Um, anyway, uh, so. Do you think I should? Yeah. Huh? Yesu alalela. Oh, okay, let me say, this is kind of a, a call and response song, right? So you need to be ready. <laughs> I'm going to sing Yesu alalela. You guys just sing alalela, okay? And then I sing that again. Yesu alalela. What does it mean? Jesus is, no, it's Jesus is... Uh, uh, praiseworthy or, or something like that. And anyway, gee, yeah, I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, there are different verses. So I will sing Yesu Alalela. Your job is to sing Alalela. Yesu Alalela, Alalela. And then we all sing Yesu Alalela, Yesu Alalela. And then we change words, okay? We'll, we'll see how this goes. Randy, you're going to have to sing loud. <laughs> Uh, 
Uh, you can if you want to. It's fine. <laughs> okay, here we go. Yesu alalela, alale. Yesu alalela, alalela. Yesu alalela, alalela. Yesu alalela, alalela. Yesu alalela, alalela. Yesu alalela. Alalela, Yesu, alalela, Yesu, alalela, Yesu, alalela, Yesu, alalela, Yesu, kiongozi, kiongozi, Yesu, kiongozi, kiongozi, Yesu, kiongozi, kiongozi, Yesu, kiongozi. Kiangozi, Yesu, ala leila. I'm gonna stop there. Ala leila, Yesu, ala leila. Ala leila, Yesu, ala leila. Ala leila, Yesu, ala leila. Ala leila. Well, yeah, I got it. Yeah, see, there you go. It's not hard. <laughs> feels like a beautiful way uh, to, uh, to wrap up, uh, remembering that we will one day all sing in all tongues around the throne together in one family. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we are, uh, with hearts full, very grateful uh, for what we've learned today. Lord, we're grateful uh, for the vision that we've, uh, we've received of the world that we're headed towards, where every uh, man, woman, and child will bow the knee and sing in their own voices, in their own tongues. Uh, praise to the King. Lord, we pray that that reality, uh, the reality of the new heavens and new earth, would more and more come to reflect and be uh, shown in the reality of our common life and our worship together as a church uh, here and, uh, and around our nation that has been so divided uh, by race and racism, cultural elitism, all of those things. Lord, I pray that you would give us as a church wisdom and humility Lord, help us to, to view what's ahead of us uh, with a kind of optimism and joy, knowing that we have a Father who loves to lead His children into new places and into new things, that we have the Spirit uh, within us, empowering us, empowering uh, the message that goes out from us. And so, Lord, we pray that more and more uh, our church would come to reflect the reality of the kingdom of God and that this neighborhood uh, would come to get a taste and a glimpse of the coming kingdom of God through our life together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus is holy, and the second verse meant Jesus is our king. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much, Joan. <laughs> You're welcome.